So, all right, well, if you're not already there, turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I think there's some out on the table out there. Um, You can grab one of those. You can take it home with you if you want it. Um, If you don't have one at home already, I'd encourage you to bring a copy of God's Word with you um, just to encourage opening your Bibles and getting used to that, knowing where certain books of the Bible are. It's it's a good practice. So if you don't have one, don't feel bad. I'm just saying, just it's a good practice if you want to know. So 1 Peter 3, we've been in a study of 1 Peter in the Catholic epistles, um, which we will be in um, for the remainder of the year, pretty much, um, with the exception of Advent. So um, if you're wanting something to read during this time, you can read through these, these epistles. I think they'll be really helpful for you personally as well. But 1 Peter chapter 3, um, 13 through 22, is uh, some important verses. Um, a lot is happening in these verses. Um, and so I'm excited to, to open this up with you. So let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, I'm, I'm encouraged by the words in Isaiah that, um, that talks about the dawn and how some do not have a dawn. Some do not uh, have a dawn that they can look to with hope. And so I'm thankful that we together as a body of believers um, can look to the dawn that we can look to the horizon, that we can look to the hills and know that our help is coming, the help that comes from you, O Lord. And so, God, I pray that again uh, this morning and during this time that you would remind us of this great truth. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the patterns that we see in Peter's letter is his rehearsing of the gospel with his readers. He never strays far from the gospel message, the explicit gospel message. Everything he says is grounded in the truth and relevancy of the gospel. He doesn't go far in his letter before coming back to the gospel. So he'll say a few things and and then he'll come back and say, this is why you do these certain things. It's because of the truth and relevancy of the gospel. He always wants his readers to be conscious of what God has done for them in Christ, and then to live that out in their own lives. So chapter 1, the the gospel reminder was, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. He was raised from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. And then chapter 2, he reminds them of the gospel again. He himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Well, chapter 3 is no different. Peter comes again to this gospel reminder to his readers. So we're going to look at this text in three three ways, or, or looking at three things from this text, because Peter is still talking about suffering here, and he will continue to talk about suffering into chapter 4. So the first point is, how to think about suffering as a believer. Peter's writing to Christians. Two, how to respond to suffering as a believer. And then three, how Jesus helps us in our suffering. So how to think about suffering as a believer, uh, how how to respond to suffering as a believer, and how Jesus helps us in our suffering. So first, 
how to think about suffering as a believer. So a, a lot of the Christian life is concentrated on your mind, specifically thinking rightly about yourself and the world through the lens of the gospel. So this is what the Bible this is how the Bible says we are to think rightly, and that is through the lens of the gospel. So before Christ, if you are a Christian before Christ, you thought one way. You thought in the ways of the world and in the culture, and you listened to, to any and everything that came along that might look good for you to kind of think through. But now after Christ, you think another way. You think uh, according to the gospel. But it's a constant battle to do that now, isn't it? Because those things that the world is trying to make us think don't go away when we become a Christian. We can't get away from them. We can turn on the TV or look at Instagram or, or, or whatever it might be, and those are thrown at us. Think this way about this thing, what the world tells us. So this is why there are reminders in Scripture that tell you to renew your minds in Ephesians chapter 4. And then Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. And then again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So even in Peter's question here to his readers in verse 13, he's causing them to think about their current situation. Look at verse 13 with me. Peter asked, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So this is at first glance, at first glance if you just remembering where Peter's audience was at this particular time, where they were in suffering. They were experiencing it, the, the, the early rumblings of suffering, and there was more suffering to come. Nero really isn't on the scene at this point uh, in time, but it's coming, and the persecution is going to be brutal. And so Peter is asking this question, which does seem odd and out of place, because the automatic answer to this question by Peter's readers would be everyone. Everyone can harm us if we are zealous for what is good, which, which means if we are zealous in living out the gospel message. Everyone wants to do us harm, it seems. So the answer to the question obviously uh, isn't a present-day answer because the present-day answer is, honestly, everyone could do us harm. The answer to the question is actually pointing to the future rather than looking at the present, which shows us the connection uh, that, that verse 13 has with the previous section, specifically verse 12. Now, this is just a good, a good uh, side note to, to just remind you that the, when the Bible was written, it did not have uh, verse numbers and chapter numbers. So this was an actual letter where it was just, you just read it. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing to refer back to. Those verse and chapter numbers were put in much, much later in the Bible to help us kind of refer back to a certain verse or a certain passage. So, so this is a connection here in 1 Peter um, chapter or verse 13 back to, to verse 12. So the implied answer is that no one can, harm, can truly harm you 
since God's eyes are on the righteous and his face is set against those who do evil. So Peter is saying there, God is, God is watching over you. His eyes are on you, not in a judgmental way and, and waiting for you to do, to do wrong. God is watching over you like a caring, loving father should watch over his children. So that's a good thing. To have God's face set against you is a terrible thing. Because when anybody, this is why no one was able to look upon the Lord, because if you looked upon God, you would die. So this is what Peter is saying. This is, these are serious implications here. When God is setting his face against the evil. So because of that, no one can truly do harm to those who do good out of their devotion to God. But it wouldn't make any sense for Peter to ask this question of this, of his readers, if they were already experiencing harm from the world, which we already know is implied. They are experiencing some level of harm from the world. Which means, Peter is not promising them that Christians would be in some protective bubble and therefore escape rejection and harm from the world, which we so often like to do in our day and time now, is to protect ourselves from the world. Verse 14, the first part of verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So Peter is saying, you will suffer. You will suffer for righteousness' sake. But you will be blessed. So Peter here, rather than saying, what's happening here in the present day? Peter is imploring them to look to their dawn, to look to their future hope. That no matter, matter what they may experience now, which is suffering and persecution, being reviled, it does not compare with the blessing that they will receive at the end of days. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, so this, Paul is saying that the, the sufferings of our day that we are experiencing now are light and momentary. So for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Peter and Paul are not saying Christians will never suffer to come to Christ, so that you can have this nice, cushy, comfortable, safe life. That is not what they are saying. What they are saying is that even when you live the Christian life, which is good in every single way, you will provoke some who will treat you poorly and even kill you. So they say, as one commentator said, suffering stalks the believer until this present evil age comes to an end. Now let me just pause and say there, 
if you're not a Christian, you're going, why would I want to become a Christian if suffering stalks me? It's stalking you too. You just don't have any hope in the midst of your suffering. You go to bed empty. You go to bed asking, what is happening? Why can I not escape this? But for the Christian, they have hope. So the point Peter is trying to make is that no one can ultimately and finally triumph over believers since God is the one who will vindicate them in the last day. So Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 ring true here. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him, fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We must be aware of our current context and how to live faithfully within it, so how to share the gospel with others. But all of this needs to be founded upon our future eternal state. That one day, the groaning of this world will cease and be no more. And what's left will be only the glory of God. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Which is why Paul can ask later in Romans 8.31 his rhetorical question when he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us if God is for us? The answer is no one. I don't care how violent they are or how strong they are or how powerful they may be or how much money they may seem to have or influence they might have over your life. No one can be against you when God is for you. Paul also says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he says this to his opponents who could kill him in the snap of a finger. But he says that to say, I have the best of both worlds. If I live, Christ will be proclaimed throughout my life. If I die, I get to be with Christ. But because we know how to think about our suffering, we know now uh, how to respond when that suffering arises. Look at verse, uh, verses 14 through 17. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So from these verses, there are three important implications for us to highlight. The first two of, of, of these three implications, Peter takes from Isaiah 8, which was read earlier for us by Nicky's. So, so when Peter says in verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, you may have caught it when we we're reading Isaiah 8. He is quoting Isaiah 8, verse 12. And Isaiah 8 is actually a, a passage that Peter has already uh, quoted from earlier in his letter. 
But by using this passage from Isaiah, he reminds his readers that they are not the first of God's people to experience outside threats. This is not unusual for the people of God. This has been historically has been happening. And it's also a way in which Peter, he's writing to mainly Gentiles here, not Jewish people. So Gentiles who don't really know or did not grow up understanding the history of the Jewish people, of God's people. So Peter is taking this as another opportunity to say, you are connected to these people as well. These people, Israel, are your people as well. So just to give you some context to Isaiah 8, the southern kingdom of Judah, where where God's kingdom was split in two. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah was now being threatened by the northern kingdoms of Israel and Aram. So when these two countries were coming against the, the nation of, of Judah, and they were, they were threatening to remove their king, King Ahaz, and essentially take over, to destroy the kingdom that, is, that existed, and to take over and put a new king in his stead. So needless to say, this threat of war and destruction filled Ahaz and Judah with terror. This is how Isaiah describes it. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, he says, When the house of David, Judah, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the two kingdoms are coming against you, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This was a terrifying situation before them. They could see no avenue of escape. But Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, promised them that the Lord would preserve Judah. This was their hope. Even with two kingdoms coming against them, the Lord is going to preserve you, that Israel and Aram would be vanquished. They would be the ones destroyed, and that the Lord would provide a sign to demonstrate the faithfulness of his word. So Isaiah 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and I love this, and let him be your dread. You're fearing these people. You're dreading this this destruction that's coming from the outside. You need to flip that and let God be who you fear and let God be who you dread. So in Judah and Ahaz, their response was to be trusting in this promise. Trusting in the Lord's promise. So when Peter says to the elect exiles in 1 Peter chapter 3 of his letter, have no fear of them, nor be troubled by them, quoting Isaiah 8, 13, he is saying that just as Judah didn't need to fear their enemies, the threats of its enemies, nor do you. So the application is the same for Israel, for Judah, for, for, for for the readers in Peter's day in the first century, but also for us in the year 2022. Trust in the Lord's promise. So This is important to understand since within our own country in, in the United States, Persecution and hostility towards Christians is 
is pretty rare. I would say pretty soft, uh, mainly. But that doesn't mean it's non-existent or that it never will happen. I think we're drawing closer and closer to the day that it probably will be more prevalent. So when suffering comes to you, Christian, don't be surprised. Peter says it like this in, 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 in chapter 4 of his letter that we'll get to in a, couple, in a couple of weeks. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So this is a really encouraging word for us as well. Because it reminds us that we, that we have nothing to fear. That God is for us and all we have to do is trust Him. It really is that simple. So another example that I, I'm pretty sure that Peter drew from is his own experience that we find in Acts chapter 5. So after being beaten and then released from prison for preaching the gospel, the apostles, Peter being one of them, reacted this way in Acts chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council to the most, pretty much the most powerful men in all of the land. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So they didn't go out saying, oh, woe is me, and cursing their accusers. They didn't go and try to, to fight them in court and say, I'm going to get the best lawyer in the land, and we are going to sue these people. They didn't raise up an army to go against their enemies. Instead, they did something completely counter to the culture that they were in by rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And then afterwards, Luke writes, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Remember, they were told not to do that. And then Luke says, they didn't cease from doing that. So the apostles surely did not fear any intimidation. And if you remember, during this particular time, uh, persecution was at a was at a level high. People, this was just after the ascension, so people were suspicious. They felt threatened, and Christians were being killed and scattered almost daily. So the apostles did not fear any intimidation, nor should you and I. The second implication Peter gives from uh, Isaiah 8 is in the first part of verse 15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So instead of fear of those who do, who do you harm, we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. So this is very similar to what Isaiah instructs Judah to do in Isaiah 8.13. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. 
So Peter alters this verse a bit. I mean, not altering as, as far as like adding to it, but he is, he is identifying Christ as the Lord in which Isaiah is also pointing to as well. So again, Peter is resetting his reader's minds back to Jesus, which is what he'll get into in the last point here in just a second. So in these two implications, Peter is trying to get his readers to wrap their mind around their position via Christ. They have nothing to fear, not because they have a bigger army, or because they're smarter, or they have the Constitution on their side and the government officials. They have nothing to fear because Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is their Lord, period. So the final implication of all of these builds off of the first two. And that is, when you begin to live in a fearless way toward the world, you're, you're setting Christ as, as the hope in your heart, even when you're slandered or persecuted, all of this will draw attention to you. And Peter says, when that attention is drawn, and when people respond uh, according to what is happening in your heart, you must be ready to give an answer to this. Because what they're seeing when you live this way is hope. They're seeing hope. To the rest of verse 15 says this. Look there with me. Is it up there? Oh yeah, it is. I didn't even know that. Okay. I see eyes going up there. So So the rest of verse 15 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So two questions this verse provokes. One, uh, if you are a Christian, can others see, visibly see, your hope in Christ? The second question it provokes, if they can, are you then prepared to tell them about this hope that you have? So first, let me just deal with the first question. Can others see your hope in Christ? So Peter is saying that a natural outcome of living a life according to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile culture will provoke questions. So, does your life look different enough that someone would ask you a question about it. Now, now this isn't difference uh, for difference sake either. So this isn't you just going and getting yourself in trouble and, and saying something foolish on the internet. This isn't uh, wearing a Christian t-shirt or a WWJD bracelet, which are making a comeback. Um, which means what would Jesus do for those who are wearing those bracelets and you have no idea what it means. But... This isn't, this isn't the difference that we're talking about here. So doing those particular things, hoping that someone will ask you about, hey, what is that on your t-shirt? That might happen. But Peter is talking about here, this is a difference in living. This is a difference in, in speaking. That your life bears witness to this hope that is changing you from the inside out. So Peter has already given, given us some examples of this in chapter 2 when he addresses uh, a Christian slave's relationship to his unbelieving master or, or a Christian wife's relationship to her unbelieving husband. He says, this is how you are to live. This is, this is what you are to say. 
when you were in those situations. Now, these may be negative responses or positive responses that you get uh, according to the way that you're living your life. So a negative, in a negative sense, this means that you may have someone approach you that just wants to argue concerning the hope that you have. By asking questions that challenge what you believe. If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Tell me that, Christian. How do you hope in a God like that? And then you may have others who respond positively. Those are the ones we, we hope for, right? That, that truly want to know what it is that you have and how that hope explains the world. So you may have questions. They may have questions about creation or the reliability of the Bible or, or how Jesus is the only way to God. So the second question this provokes is, are you prepared to answer those types of questions when people ask about the hope that you have? So Peter uses this phrase, being prepared to make a defense, which is the, which is the Greek word, apologia, uh, which is where we get our English word, apologetics, from. So apologetics means, simply means giving a reason or, or a defense for the Christian faith. So let me just be clear and say that, just in case you're checking out, that Peter is not necessarily speaking about formal situations here. I know I think we see, see professional apologetics on YouTube or whatever, and they can, just, they can hold their own in front of uh, a crowd at Harvard or Princeton or Yale, and we think, man, that is impressive, and I am so thankful they're doing that, but I could never do that. Let me just say that Peter is not necessarily talking about those sorts of apologetic interactions. Some of you might have opportunity to do that. Someone, someone, some of you may be more skilled than others at that, and praise be to God. And I, pray, I, I hope that you use your gifts in that way. But for Peter, Peter is actually speaking about the casual conversations that you have with your neighbors that you have with your coworkers or your classmates or your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving children as you live day in and day out, even in the midst of suffering and possible persecution and amidst a hostile culture towards Christianity, as you live this way day in and day out with your hope set on Christ. So Peter assumed that believers had some intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. You, you did not become a Christian in the first century thoughtlessly. That was something that you thought through heavily because you were, you were about to lose a lot. So Peter assumed that his crowd had intellectual grounds for believing the gospel and therefore could defend it if someone were to ask. So do you know how to give a defense for your Christian faith? If someone were to ask you, what is the hope that you have? How would you respond? Now, let me just say, they probably won't ask the question as specifically as that. It will probably be more like, why do you choose to work less hours when you could be making a ton of money to be home with your family early? Why don't you take that promotion? Or, or how are you so patient with that obnoxious 
lazy coworker? How do you keep your cool when frustrating things happen? Uh, why do you sit with the kid at lunch that no one else sits with? How do you do that? Why, why are you so kind even to people who aren't kind back to you? Why are you not anxious about XYZ that is happening in the world that everyone else seems to be so anxious about? How are you so calm? How are you so patient? Or they could be more direct. With questions like, why do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Maybe they've ever heard you say that. Or how can you believe in something like the virgin birth or the resurrection? That seems insane to me. How can God be real and still allow all of these terrible things to happen in the world? How do you know what the Bible says is true? Why do you believe it? Now, to answer some of these questions, you actually need to be doing the things that are mentioned here. And then next, you may want to answer those questions yourself before you actually get them from other people. So if you didn't already, I'd encourage you to kind of jot some of those things down and begin to kind of work your way through those things. It's a good practice to have. Why do I live this way? How does the gospel influence the way that I live my life now? How would I answer that question? Why do I believe what I believe? And the answer that you give uh, to these should be answers that are as Peter says, gentle and respectful and laced with the truth, truth of the gospel. The hope that you have. Which means, I'm not telling you to go home and get on Facebook and start arguing with people. That's not what Peter is talking about. So the main idea of verses 13 through 17 is that believers should not fear the world, even though they may suffer at the hands of unbelievers. Don't fear them. Instead, what they should do is set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts and be prepared to respond to the question raised by un- questions raised by unbelievers. That is, that is Peter's strategy for reaching the world with the gospel. And the reason that you do all of this is that you will be rewarded and blessed by God for suffering for righteousness sake. And it's Jesus himself who models this way of life for us. So how Jesus helps us in our suffering. Look at verses 18 through 22. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Think about that for a minute. Because these verses are admittedly, and not only by me, but also by other very smart men and women who commentate on these verses as well. 
So it's actually one of the most, uh, these verses that I just read are some of the most debated uh, verses that have been written uh, in the passages of Scripture. So the reformer Martin Luther uh, actually said of these particular verses, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So I'm going to take the next few moments to do what Luther could not. (laughs) And make this all clear for you. So, before getting caught up in the difficulties, let me first point out that in these verses, we find, most importantly, and I hope you see it, the third Christological passage in Peter's letter. Remember, Peter does not stray far from the gospel message. The clear gospel message. So the first two I mentioned in the intro... Uh, from chapter 1 and chapter 2. So this is a helpful and important reminder, uh, again, that Peter doesn't go far without coming back to a very explicit, theological and biblically grounded explanation of the gospel to his readers. So now in verses 18 through 22, he gets into it again. So one commentator helpfully points out three main points of these verses that makes it a little easy for us to kind of work our way through the weeds of these verses. So first, in verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins to bring believers to God. So again, Peter reminding us of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Christ suffered, and you could, you could put in there, Christ died, that is, that is a way in which he suffered, he died for your sins to bring you to God. If that doesn't happen first, you don't come to God. So Peter makes sure that is clear. So he's providing the reason for his claim in verse 17. That it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? Why is it better for us to suffer for doing good? Well, it's because Christ suffered for doing good specifically highlighting the uniqueness of his sufferings, uh, dying to bring you to God. He gave his life so that you could have life. He died so that you did not have to die for your sins. So Christ goes before us as, uh, as our forerunner in suffering and as our example. And as Peter has already said in chapter 2, verse 21, We are to follow in his steps. That's how he calls us to live. The second implication we see here is in verses 18 through 19, where Peter says, By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from the dead and proclaimed victory over demonic spirits. So there are various views of what is meant by Christ proclaiming to the spirits in prison, which I don't have time to delve into uh, today. But for now, I am going to offer uh, the majority view, which I think best explains uh, that Christ's proclamation here that Peter is referring to uh, is is victory over evil angels. And there's a lot of passages in the Old Old Testament and the New Testament that, that back up this argument here. But I think this is a comfortable interpretation uh, because Peter explains it even more in his second letter, Chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Peter says, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then you have in, the, in Jude's letter, uh, verse 6, Jude's just one chapter, so it's just verse 6. Uh, Jude says, uh, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it seems the best solution is that the verse proclaims Christ's victory over demonic spirits, uh, evil angels, uh, after his death and resurrection. And that's what's, what Peter is referring back to here. Now that's a sorry explanation for that. I could go into way more detail, but we won't do that today. But just trust me on that. I mean, Martin Luther didn't know, so... The third point arises in verse 22. Verse 22. And here we see that, that he takes, that Christ is taking on this victorious posture by now being exalted on high and sitting at God's right hand and having subjected all powers to himself. In other places in scripture it says that he has made them his footstool. He has the power over them. So the main point being from all of these other points is that believers have no need to fear suffering for the sake of the gospel because you share the same destiny as your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose suffering has secured the victory over all hostile forces. So Peter wasn't trying to get in the weeds here theologically and biblically. his, His audience understood what he was talking about. And the point he was making was, you have no need to fear because your Savior is victorious over all of these powers, human and spiritual. All of them are submitted to him. So this is what Peter is making clear in verses 18 through 22, meaning that those who share in Christ's sufferings, so if you are a believer in Christ, you share in Christ's sufferings. And because of the hope that you have within you, you will not be defeated, but will also share in Christ's victory. Because Jesus endured, we can also endure. Because Jesus was victorious and is victorious, we also will be victorious. You have nothing to fear. And then this brings us to verse 20. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter uh, uses the Old Testament example of Noah and his family being uh, saved uh, in the ark in the flood uh, as an application point for his readers here. This is why he brings up Noah. To say that, that, that like these eight like these few here who were also exiles in a small community of God's people, and they were also up against opponents who mistreated them, they also lived in a culture that by and large was against God. That's why there was only eight people whom God saved. There was only eight people in the world who at that particular time feared God 
who acknowledged him, who worshipped him. Only eight. So Peter relates this story to his readers to say, don't be discouraged by your smallness. Don't be, uh, don't be discouraged by, by any of these outward um, aspects of, of your reality that would cause you to fear. Don't be discouraged or fear those things. But remember that God is with you. And the day of judgment is coming, as it did for Noah, where your opponents will be put to shame as well, and you will be vindicated. You will be declared innocent. Just as Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters, Peter is saying, so you will be as well. Which now Peter, in verse 21, relates to their baptism. To say that the same waters that cleansed the earth from sin and saved Noah and his family now functions as a model for the Christian. Look at verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is significant that Peter mentions baptism here. Because I think for some, especially in in our day and age, baptism um, can become just a, a, just a, I don't know, an unimportant act or, or just a ritual performed and then forgotten. Not a big deal. But for Peter, it's much, much more than that. Peter has just raised the level of baptism um, high. Because Peter is saying that it is much more than a graduation from high school. It is much more than, a, than just, a, just a birthday uh, celebration. But your baptism, rather, is an identity marker. Because in your baptism, you are identifying yourself with Jesus Christ in two ways. One, you identify with Jesus in his death. So when you are visibly and physically immersed, which is what we practice here, when you go down into the waters and you are immersed into the waters of baptism, this actually represents death for you. When you were under the water, if someone were to hold you there until you couldn't breathe, you would die. You couldn't escape. And just as the flood waters of Noah were an agent of destruction, so are the waters of baptism. And that's what that represents when you go under the water. This is how Paul describes it uh, in Romans chapter 6, verses 3-5. through five. It's the baptism passage. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you identify with Christ through your baptism in his death. And the second way you identify with Christ in your baptism as a believer is in his resurrection. You are rescued from death through Jesus' resurrection. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, 
that, that we, what we're doing here is pointless and useless. If Jesus was not, did not rise from the dead, everything that we're doing here is absurd and crazy. And you are rescued through Jesus' resurrection. So we can see from verse 22 that baptism is rooted in this. It is rooted in the resurrection. So along with Romans 6, Paul also says in Colossians 2, verse 12, that's a lot about baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, so again, because of the person and work of Christ, Peter is saying that baptism then symbolizes our cleansing. The cleansing that happens in the hearts of those who believe. So he's not saying baptism saves you in a salvific sense. Okay, Roman Catholics teach that, that baptism is an act of salvation that, that, that actually saves you. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. That is not what Peter is talking about here. Peter is symbolizing baptism here with, this, with the aspect of, the act of salvation that happens within us, that God does within us through Christ. And now, because uh, you have been cleansed and because, because you have been saved by God in Christ, you can now, Peter says, appeal to God for a good conscience. So this is much like what we hear in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. The author of Hebrews says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is especially encouraging to Peter's readers and to us as we face our own opposition to the faith. Baptism, baptism is important, is what Peter is saying. Baptism is something that we can, that we can point back to. And this is why, why if, 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 uh, if somebody is, you know, we find somebody who's, who might be walking in sin and really struggling with, with certain things in their life, one of the things that, that I typically do will, will be to point back to their baptism. And to say, what happened there? What does that symbolize for you? Is it, is it just something that you were just doing a ritual and that you, just made you feel good about yourself? What Peter is saying is that baptism reminds you that God has saved you. That you have died to the old self and that you are now raised to walk in the newness of life because Christ is changing you and forming you because of his resurrection. That's what your baptism represents. And so now we can appeal to God. Now we have this this, this pathway that is open to us to God. So that when you are slain, when you are reviled, your good behavior, your right living, your good conscience that has been given to you by God in Christ will put those to shame who do that. Now, they may be put to shame right before you, and they recognize that they're wrong, and maybe they repent and they come to know Jesus through that shame that they experience, or their shame will be revealed in the last days. At the judgment day of Christ, their shame will be laid before them. 
So it's no surprise that Peter would end this part of his letter reminding his readers that this only happens because of the resurrection. And Jesus' position at the right hand of of the Father, so his ascension as well, and Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death, and, just to add, all principalities and powers. To reiterate that because of Jesus' death and resurrection and his reigning position at the right hand of the Father, nothing in this world will separate the Christian from God. Nothing. That because Jesus reigns victorious over his enemies, our enemies, by implication, we will reign together with him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you that you are you, you remind us um, one of that great day that we will experience one day when Jesus comes to gather his bride back to himself. What a wonderful reminder that is from Peter um, that, that the dawn is coming. The dawn is coming, that our hope um, that we have hoped for here on this earth will be secured at the appearing of Jesus our King. God, help us to rest in that as your, as your church, even when we face persecution, that we would not be discouraged, that we would not be um, downtrodden by, by those things, but that we would be encouraged because we know where our hope lies. It's not in what people think about us. It's not in how people treat us, but it's in, in how you see us as your righteous ones. God, I pray for my friends here who, who may not yet know you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That, that they would see, uh, that they would find hope for their hopelessness in Christ alone today. And we pray all of these things in the mighty name of our King Jesus. Amen.